This episode is part of our series discussing the debate topics released for Debatable Open 2021. The motions can be found in the description along with timestamps for your convenience. Please enjoy. Welcome back to another episode of Debatable for Debatable Open. For this post-debate analysis, we interview Carlo Antonio, who contributed to the social legal set. Carlo is a three-time national semifinalist, an Asian quarterfinalist, was the best judge of the Philippines back in 2014, and is currently a constitutional law professor. Welcome to the show, and thank you so much for being here. Well, it's nice to be here as well. Thank you for having me. You know, I, I've been an avid listener of uh, Debatable, actually. Oh, thank you. On my way home from work. <laughs> That's so flattering. No, That's it's so flattering. True. Because it's, I... um, it's a nice way for me to keep myself sharp. To me, uh, in in order for me to, you know, to be abreast with what's happening in the community, like how do you debate current issues? Because I don't have time to, you know, to to review the matter. <laughs> Yeah, that's very flattering because I still remember the times back in high school when you were still teaching me how to debate. <laughs> we were so yeah, that was like what ten years ago, nine years. That's, that's <laughs> around ten years ago. I, I first Ooh. met you in two thousand ten, like you were second, old. first or second year college. First and that was year, just first year first high year school. College. Yeah. yeah, first year college. Yeah. So anyway, before you proceed with the motions. Uh, we just wanted to ask, and this is something that we ask all of our guests um, for the post-debate analysis. Um, what certain skills are common and should be mastered um, for social legal motions in order to debate them well? Skills. Well, it's really responsiveness. When when you debate um, social legal motions, it's a battle of uh, characterizations. It's a battle of uh, framing. It's a battle of principles uh, because both sides would be insisting on a set of principles which would determine whether a course of action is morally correct or is it morally wrong. So you would insist that your certain paradigm or your certain um, set of principles is the correct way to judge whether an action is correct or is, it, or is wrong. No, and how do you win that particular exchange is your ability to be able to respond to their set of paradigm and be able to pinpoint why that is the incorrect uh, paradigm to, to assess a situation or that is the incorrect paradigm to apply in debate. So being really responsive and sharp it is crucial in winning a social legal uh, debate Thank you. So I, I'm kind of curious about something since um, before you became uh, a law professor and practicing law, um, you were debating. And I wanted to ask, like, how did your perspective on social legal motions change? Like, what do you think are the best parts and worst parts of it, especially now that you have a better understanding of the law, looking at law motions? Well, um, as a lawyer, the best part about social legal motions is that you're not constrained to a set of rules, unlike in a courtroom, because in a debate round, you are debating on what the law should be, 
or what should be our social policy, right? Because the law is only a codification of our social values. And in a debate round, we are revisiting these social values. So the best part of debating social legal motions is you get to shape the, what do you call this, the social values of society to an extent within that round. The worst part, though, is sometimes debaters, especially debaters who have law backgrounds, who have legal backgrounds, they tend to be boxed. Like, the other side is wrong because that is contrary to, to the law or that is contrary to a ruling of the Supreme Court. So most debaters with legal backgrounds tend to be boxed within a set of rules, when in fact, that's not the case in a debate round. We are reassessing whether these are correct set of rules uh, that should govern society. Another worst part about social legal motions, sometimes uh, things get too abstract uh, towards the end. Debaters tend to uh, be up in the air debating about principles, right or wrong, etc. But uh, it becomes too abstract that you don't know what's happening anymore or what is the impact of these principles that you are discussing to the live reality. So I think that's the worst part. It becomes too abstract and you don't know how to assess a debate anymore since it's too abstract in, uh, for you to assess it. Okay, so we, we can move on to um, the first motion, which is about prohibiting financial settlements in environmental lawsuits. Was there any particular event that happened recently that inspired this motion? Well, there are a lot of environmental lawsuits going on right now, with fi uh, wherein parties are already exploring uh, financial settlements. So this is not like a current event inspired motion. Uh, it's been happening uh, since we started debating, you know, uh, par uh, parties uh, exploring financial settlements. But what inspired me to give this particular motion, although financial settlements have been happening since then, is the current impact of climate change uh, that we are experiencing right now, given the strong typhoons uh, that we have been experiencing. So I decided to come up with a social legal slash environmental motion. And um, one particular current event that I recently read was a potential settlement of an environmental lawsuit, I think in Colorado, worth 40 billion or 40 million US dollars. So they're exploring that. And the estimated damage um, is worth even more. That is beside the human lives that have been lost and destroyed, plus the environmental impact of the pollution. So that's where uh, I got the inspiration for the motion. I just want to ask, um, does this extend only to corporations or does this also extend to governments? Like, can you expect... For example, if, if you want to describe how these financial settlements work, um, can a team reasonably assume that you can demand the state for 
like a, a financial something or like damages or even financial settlements? Well, it could involve the government if uh, it was the government who committed the environmental crime. But most often than not, this uh, debate uh, refers to cor large corporations who, in the course of them doing business, they pollute or commit environmental crimes. But I could see the possibility now. The teams could also uh, define the motion involving governments. Like, for example, in China, um, wherein a lot of corporations there are, you know, state-owned uh, corporations, right? So it's also possible uh, that you sue the government because it was a state-owned corporation which committed uh, these environmental so besides financial settlements, um, obviously, I, I guess the debate expects a sort of comparison with other methods of dealing with environmental lawsuits. So what are the alternatives that exist that you expect debaters to talk about with this motion? I think the very crux of this debate is how do we make polluters pay, essentially? How, how do we deter them? How do we punish them uh, for the environmental crimes that they commit? So if you're on government bench, so you're supporting the ban on financial settlements, um, most likely the alternative that government bench would propose is financial settlements aren't allowed and polluters uh, would have to, to face a criminal punishment or uh, the full financial cost of the damage of the environmental uh, crime that they committed. Because in financial settlements, most often than not, the money that you are going to pay out to the complainants does not fully reflect the damage that you have caused. So usually it's on a bargain, right? Uh, for example, uh, in the Gulf of Mexico, when uh, British oil spilled uh, one of their oil rigs, right? Uh, I think the amount that uh, the environmental damage, the estimated environmental damage uh, was around trillions or even billion, uh, trillions of dollars. But I think uh, the oil company was only made to pay a few million dollars as settlement for the crime, uh, for, for spilling oil in the Gulf of Mexico. So, in these situations, of course, um, if you're government bench, you wouldn't accept that kind of reality wherein the polluters do not pay the full amount of the environmental damage. So the alternative that government is proposing is they have to face jail time. They can't just pay off um, the complainants and then expect the criminal complaints against them dropped and of course they should be expected to pay the full amount of the environmental damage that they have caused all right so since you talked about jail time um this mm -hmm. brings you to like the, the next thing i was going to ask which is how do you think gov would um, argue this because similar to this motion um an accused for example in a criminal case um, who is also facing jail time can't um, can't resolve his case with 
financial settlements. You can't pay the victim money and hope that the criminal case goes away just like that. Because in criminal cases, the real offended party is the state, it's the general public. That's why it's um, people versus Atego, people versus Tomas, something like that. So I just want to ask, would the same principle be here, would be applicable here and should Gov necessarily like talk about something like that in principle? Well, uh, I agree that that could also happen in this particular motion because even in criminal cases, once the parties settle, the courts uh, in practice allow the dismissal of the case. Um, the complainants would simply uh, state for the record that they are now desisting uh, from pursuing the criminal case and that they are now withdrawing their testimonies. If there are no testimonies against the accused, definitely it would result in uh, their acquittal. So that's how in practice um, criminal cases are settled. So once there is a settlement between the accused and the complainants, although technically the, the real offended party is the state, uh, the complainants who are the eyewitnesses to the crime and the very people on which the case relies on, they would simply recant their statements and say, uh, I'm withdrawing my complaint, I'm withdrawing my testimony from the court. So without that testimony, you can't convict uh, the accused anymore. That's why the judge would simply dismiss the case because the complainants are no longer interested in pursuing the case and there would be insufficient evidence to convict uh, the accused. So in environmental crimes, that also happens. For example, if uh, if a certain community would file criminal violations against uh, corporations for violation of uh, environmental laws, so the primary witnesses there would be the complainants themselves, the, the communities, the neighborhoods, right? So their testimonies are essential to convict the accused. Without their testimonies, without their written statements, you cannot convict. Um, the accused in this case. So if there have been financial settlements, of course, part of their agreement is the witnesses would have, or the complainants rather, would have to withdraw their testimonies. And without their testimonies, it would result in the acquittal of the accused. So that kind of principle also applies in this case. So other than that, are there any other like arguments that Gov bench would have to argue, or would you recommend that they argue? Well, first of all, when we speak of environmental crimes, the effect lasts beyond our lifetime. You know, environmental crimes have this intergenerational impact, right? Um, if you pollute a lake, for example, and you disturb the ecosystem there then the impact to that community lasts uh, for generations, right? It could even be a permanent damage to the community. So if there is environmental crimes, the victims are not only the complainants in this case, those who directly suffered the injury at this moment, but the other members of the community who are yet to be born or even... Um, members of the community who did not uh, join the financial settlements 
and would want this case uh, to be pursued. So that's why government bench would have to argue that uh, it's unjustified for them for for a certain for a small group of people to drop the case when in fact the effects uh, is not only confined to them but could be experienced by the generations that are yet to come that's why it's unfair to allow a certain group of people to simply receive uh, some of money and yet the polluters go unpunished for the crimes that could impact not only the complainants but you know the other species as well and it further um, harms our effort to combat climate change so i think those are the primary arguments which government bench could run okay on the other hand what do you think um what would you recommend um arguments in support of financial settlements and environmental lawsuits well this is where opposition has to be good in characterizing litigation or court cases it's protracted it takes a while right it takes years in order for it to be finished plus there is no certainty of winning in litigation right so if there is a certain group of people who suffered injury and who would just want to move on, right? To to take as much uh, financial resources as they can as they can receive to rehabilitate their lives, to pay for their medical bills, uh, for example, to move uh, to a different state and have a fresh start in life. Uh, it would be unfair for them since they are the direct. Uh, victims of these crimes and who would support them eventually towards the end so it's unfair uh, for the state to force them uh, to proceed to this type of proceeding which has no guarantee that they would be you know uh, repaid in the end or they would be compensated in the end you know given uh, that there is a disjunct in terms of the legal resources of big corporations in defending themselves as compared to you know your lowly neighborhoods who, who would, who's going to defend them who's going to prosecute their case in their behalf plus they don't have the resources to go into a protracted litigation as compared to the bigger corporations who can afford you know the best lawyers money can buy i, I wanted to ask if you could also run an argument about what the money could be used for like who does the money go to does it go to private citizens or can it go to organizations for example that will create like better environmental policies oh th that's a good um argument to explore actually um there are environmental lawsuits that are settled not only between private individuals but also with the with the government itself right so um polluters instead of facing jail time they would simply agree uh, to pay this amount of money to the government and the government would you know could eventually use that to rehabilitate the area that they uh, that was polluted this happens in a lot of cases like for example during the you know fi global financial crisis where a lot of fraudulent activities were 
uncovered happening in Wall Street, right? And you never saw these Wall Street guys face jail time because they entered into a financial settlement uh, with the United States government, with the Department of Justice. Like in exchange of no jail time, we're gonna pay this much. So that could also be a good argument for opposition in terms of how do we truly combat, how do we strategically combat you know, environmental pollution? Like, um, would it be worth it just to send them to jail after X number of years? Or would it be worth it to simply, you know, bite the bullet, take their money, and use it to rehabilitate, you know, the environment and hopefully the communities that were affected? So, in, so they could run that sort of strategy argument on how to combat, you know, environmental pollution. Thank you so much. Uh, I think that wraps wraps up our first motion. I think the second motion is also kind of in line with the idea of strategy. So this is the motion about violent retaliation against the police by um, racial minorities. And for this motion, I guess the first thing I want to ask would be, what's the fairest way to characterize racially motivated police violence? Because based on the news and based on how everyone's discussing it, it seems to come up in very different forms. Like there are implicit forms of violence, also very explicit forms of violence. What kind of racially motivated police violence were you expecting when you created this motion? Well, intuitively, um, debaters might um, think of George Floyd, right? Um, which sparked the recent uh, BLM, um, uh, BLM protests in the United States. But that's not the only violence uh, that you could speak of. Um, I mean, that's the extreme version of police violence, right? Like killing a person. Um, but that's not the only violence that we are talking about. We are also talking about um, excessive use of force in order to arrest an individual. Uh, for example, you don't need to uh, push him to the ground. You don't need to slam him uh, in front of the hood of the car of a police car in order to effect the arrest when in fact um, you could have simply handcuffed them and placed them inside the police car. But given his, uh, his race or his ethnicity, uh, the police exerts excessive force or more force than what is usually required in order to arrest a person. So I guess in response then, what would violent retaliation look like? Would you say that it would equal the violence that police um, commit? Or would you say that the, the violent retaliation that racial minorities engage in would probably look different? Okay, this is where um, teens should be very careful. Um, it's okay if government bench would want to characterize or define violent retaliation as them physically inflicting pain on the police officers themselves, or you could frame it in, in a much more tempered manner, um, like destruction of uh, monuments of racism, destruction of uh, police properties, but not the policemen themselves, like what happened in the Stonewall riots 
wherein uh, the rioters destroyed police cars, uh, slashed their tires, stuff like that, but not physical harm on the policemen themselves. But it's also possible for them to define violent retaliation as infliction of non-lethal force against the police, like uh, tear gas, uh, for example. You know, some protesters would throw tear gas against the police uh, as a sort of response to the tear gassing that they themselves are experiencing. So that's also a possible uh, characterization of uh, violent retaliation. So basically, it's sort of an orchestrated uh, riot or violent civil disobedience towards the police, but not necessarily a physical retaliation on the persons of the policemen themselves. Besides members of the minorities and uh, members of law enforcement, do you imagine any other like actor um, in this debate? Like, perhaps if there would be like a deputy speaker and they want to think about an extension, making an extension, what other actors can they look into? Yeah, um, for the first part of the debate, uh, teams would most likely argue on why is it justified? Why is it morally correct uh, for them to engage in violent retaliation? And then the latter half of the debate would be about why are we doing this in the first place? Why are you violently retaliating against the police? Right? Of course, you want something to happen towards the end of your uh, violent retaliation. And that is, of course, uh, systemic change uh, within the police bureaucracy, that you lessen the racism or you completely eradicate racism in terms of policing. And how do you do that? Right? Of course, um, teams would be arguing this would need legislation, this would need policy change uh, from the government. And how do you make the government change the very system which allows racial violence to exist within the police ranks? Um, then government bench would argue, could argue rather, that a violent retaliation could force the hand of the government to respond uh, to the racially motivated police violence, which have been left unchecked and have been left uh, unpunished by the government. So you would, uh, teams would also need to argue about, you know, the legislators themselves, you know, the, the government in terms of uh, changing policies. But more importantly, you know, the, the moderates, those who don't have any particular view or are not politically motivated to engage in the discourse on changing uh, status quo? How do you get their support? Because if you get the popular support, that's also uh, another catalyst for changing uh, legislation. If you get enough uh, people to support your cause, then uh, politicians would respond to that, of course, because they need to be popular uh, to the people too. So. Those are the other stakeholders that um, teams should also look into when they argue for or against the violent retaliation. Thank you for those. Those sound like, actually, I would say that a lot of those were already good arguments for Gov to run, actually, like how do you get change? Um, but in terms of principle, what do you think would be the strongest or first principle that government teams have to run in support of 
um, the kind of violence that we're talking about in this motion. Yeah. Well, this is where teams uh, need to establish a good paradigm on when is violence justified. So that is the first thing that teams uh, should be able to argue. When is it justified? When is it not justified, right? So for government bench, of course, they would be characterizing uh, violence as sort of an act of self-defense against the police, wherein uh, the police have systematically you know, inflicted racially motiv motivated violence against their particular group. And the very government that should be protecting them uh, is not doing anything about it to address the uh, racially motivated violence against them. So they are now pushed against the wall uh, in terms of forcing the hand of the government to do something about it. That's why they would you know, eventually commit acts of violence because this is to an extent a form of self-defense already on their part. And when your life is already threatened, society has already agreed that violence is justified in order for you to defend your own life when no one else is defending it for you. So those are like the first principles of violence in social legal debates. Of course, there are a lot of deeper uh, analysis on the justification of violence, but as a rookie debater, those are the first things that you should be able to master concept of self-defense yeah i remember the self-defense argument we use it a lot like if it's about mm -hmm. vigilantism if it's about like eco-terrorism we say well it's self-defense there's even like self-defense um there's even violence in defense of your property is something that we recognize in even in our law um but with respect to opposition what arguments do you think um they should run or do you recommend that they run all right so obviously opposition needs to respond to the self-defense concept or the last resort concept of uh, government bench. Their response to that is the system isn't broken. Sure, um, it's not working as expected, but violence uh, is not the only way by which you could make the system work. So this is a battle already of framing wherein Nonviolent civil disobedience have also um, caused social change in the past, right? Um, people didn't engage in violent retaliation against the government or against the police, and yet they were able to achieve uh, social change. So this is where you need uh, opposition bench would have to characterize the moderates or the bystanders in this battle between the racial minorities and the police. Like, how are they going to support your movement? Like, what are their values? Where are they coming from? Will they more likely support your movement if uh, you are violent, you engage in violence, and your violence bleeds into private property, which have been the common uh, criticism against uh, the BLM protests in the United States. Although there have been... Um, very minimal violent riots committed by BLM protesters, but some of these violence uh, bleeds into private communities already. And to an extent that weakens the narrative for BLM protesters in these communities who have been affected. 
because they feel like we didn't do anything. We're not the ones who committed uh, these racial violence. We do not also support it. And yet we were caught in the crossfires between the two. So opposition could also bank on that type of characterization. Like if you lose the support of the community, then how could you expect change in legislation if you become unpopular yourselves? So I, I think that perfectly wraps up our discussion of the second motion. Um, so you could see like there are a bunch of principle and pragma pragmatic arguments that debaters should probably master. Um, and I think this was a good motion to sort of um, familiarize yourself with basic principles in social legal motions. But now for the third motion, which is about jury nullification. Um, and this came with a really detailed info slide, uh, which was very informative. Um, but I guess my question would be, um, it's something that like reasonably would not be covered by the info slide would be why is this a practice to begin with? Um, so what's the history behind jury nullification and how did it come about in the first place? Well, jury nullification uh, was intended uh, back in England, wherein judges were easily persuaded by the powers that be, like the kings, the lords, the barons, etc. So they could easily be swayed by by these people, right? And the common folk, you know, the commoners who make up the jury, right? They serve as the last check and balance against that political inference, interference, wherein if you, if, if uh, parliament or the king enacted a particular law, which the commoners believe is unjust against them, and if left to the decision of the judge, which are beholden to the to the kings, to the lords, to the barons, etc., then the commoners who come up, who, who compose the jury, uh, have the power to say, "We refuse to apply that law to this particular person that you are persecuting." So that's uh, the beginning of the jury nullification concept, wherein commoners band together to resist an unjust law imposed upon them by the king. That's a jury nullification. So basically, it's when like jur jurors know or actually believe that if you apply strictly apply the law, then the accused is definitely guilty. But they're just like, let's not apply the law in this instance. Let's let's um, let's say that we just not apply it here, even though it should probably apply. If it were just the judge, it would probably be applied. Um, I wanted to ask, what would the alternatives to jury nullification be? Like in, in the Philippines, I, I think, first of all, we, we don't have juries here. We only have judges. But if a judge, for example, believes that a particular penal statute is unjust, the judge isn't allowed to just refuse to apply it. Um, I think what he's supposed to do is to apply it anyway and then like write a letter to the president asking for the law to be changed. So what yeah. other alternatives would do you recommend that government bench um, raise or, or propose in order to um, more successfully argue for the abandonment of jury nullification? Well, one particular alternative here is you allow the juries to 
have a leeway in determining the sentence of, of the accused, right? Because sometimes uh, the sentence is quite straightforward, right? And uh, the reason why jury nullification also exists is because the juries don't get to decide the penalty for the accused, it's the judge. So that's the sentencing part of the process because the juries are only tasked to determine whether you believe, based on the facts uh, presented, the accused committed the crime that he was accused of. So that's the only thing that they need to decide, guilty or not guilty, right? And juries feel powerless in terms of the outcome already for the accused. Like, sure, he committed the crime, he, he stole something, but we don't think he should, he deserves to go to jail. And the judge might have a different, you know, might have a different view. So instead of proclaiming his guilt, they would simply say not guilty and in effect nullify the law as applied to him. So one thing which government could also propose is to allow the juries themselves to determine uh, the penalty they believe the accused uh, deserves. So it's not going to be like Jean Valjean where... He goes to jail for 20 years for stealing a loaf of bread, something like that. Yes, something like that. So other than those things, I noticed that um, there was a kind of specific piece of matter to know, which is like the the fact that juries don't actually have a hand in the sentencing. Because at least for, for most, I get most legal dramas that are out there on TV, they're not super accurate about like the difference between a uh, finding of guilt or innocence versus the judge giving the sentence or like the penalty. Um, so other than those, what other legal, important legal concepts do you think debaters should read up on in order to debate this motion well, like beyond rookie or novice level? Well, I think debaters should master the pillars of the criminal justice system. Why do we have a criminal justice system in the first place, right? So it's rehabilitation, uh, uh, retribution, and protection of society. So you must be able to master these three concepts because in most social legal debates, when it involves punishment, it usually revolves around whether it is too much uh, retribution or is it already too much restoration that you are already too soft towards crime right so in order for you to be able to debate this well in principle because matters are forgivable right we, we don't expect uh, debaters to be that well versed in legal proceedings but what is unforgivable uh, for debaters is if they are not able um, to argue what's the purpose of the criminal justice system, why it should be allowed to be this way, to be retributive if you want it to be, or if you want it to be restorative. And if debaters don't have that complete grasp of the criminal justice system and its principles, uh, they would have a hard time uh, arguing this. So I guess we already covered a bunch of the principles behind this motion and what you need to know in order to sort of take a deep dive. Um, so now I guess what we need to ask is, 
what are some arguments in support of abandoning jury nullification? Wait, for, for abandoning, right? So the first is yeah. for abandoning it. Uh, right. uh, well, the common um, argument against juries in the first place is that they're not trained in law. These are, you know, average people, right? That's how you pick juries. It's based on the voters list and they're randomly picked. So it could be uh, that guy serving you coffee at Starbucks or that guy uh, flipping burgers in McDonald's. So these are the juries, right? And when we talk about the legal system, especially crimes and punishment, these are complex matters, which um, not even someone who has a PhD who do not have any training in law can easily grasp. And if we allow these people to be able to nullify a law which was debated upon by Congress, which was, you know, uh, presumably was researched on well by, by the congressman, then um, they're easily persuaded uh, to the extent that their decision might not already be an informed decision, but might be a decision based on the persuasive um, you know, persuade, uh, persuasion skills of the lawyers, of the accused, etc. And that's, you know, that's that shouldn't be taken into consideration in a court of law. Uh, it's only a determination whether an individual committed a crime, but as to his particular motivations, that should be out of the question already. And if someone who has zero um, legal background, they sometimes forget about it and treated like a TV drama, wherein uh, they look into the lives of the accused, et cetera, how awful his childhood was, when in fact, that's not relevant uh, to the case at hand. But since these are ordinary folks, those are the things that they'd like to latch on and decide on instead of the merits of the case, the, the facts, whether a person committed a crime or not. So those are like the general arguments for abandoning jury nullification. Now, uh, in support of jury nullification, um, sometimes the, the government lacks that ability to adapt quickly. Uh, our laws sometimes are very static. They, they don't change, even if our values have changed, even if society has changed because law is only a codification of our social values. So the law comes from what ordinary people believe in, right? And congressmen just write it down in a piece of paper and force everyone to follow it, right? So jury nullification is but an exercise of the jury's um, sovereignty, like the power to create laws come from the people. Right? And the jury members are part of the people. So they have a say as to what law should or shouldn't govern. Because the laws by which we are now applying were enacted because of the power we gave to the government. So to an extent, we're only exercising our sort of participation uh, in this democratic process of coming up with rules and regulations. But of course, uh, you'd have to also characterize well 
the, the jury members because government bench would try to, you know, paint them in such, you know, a bad light. But of course, you need to argue if you're opposition that it doesn't mean he's not a lawyer. It means he, he's dumb or he, he's stupid. He's easily persuaded, right? So you need to also, you know, characterize them well. Because it's going to be a battle of characterizations between government bench. Whether we rely on ordinary people to decide on complex issues or are these ordinary people capable of handling these issues themselves? Sorry, I, was, I was actually about to ask you about like the battle of characterizations that you were expecting to happen. I was going to say, like, so at this point, the battle of characterizations that will happen is how, how much do you trust um, a juror, a common person, to determine matters or issues of law. So like, I was thinking that opposition would say much of the same things that you were saying about how, well, laws are basically just codifications of our own sense of, of morality already. Meanwhile, government would say things like, well, they don't have the training in order to be able to identify like the specific nuances of penal statutes, for example, like particular elements um, that may or may not be there or when like, or like determining the presence of those elements. Um, but my actual question now would be, so do you think um, in this motion, since it's about like just applying the law versus allowing some leeway for people to nullify it in some instances, what would you say to a debater um, who is strongly considering or has actually argued basically Duralex said Lex, the, the law is harsh, what is the law? Like, what do I say to that debater? Yeah, I guess. Maybe advice. <laughs> okay. Um, don't be that kind of debater. Don't be a Duralex-Sedlex kind of debater. <laughs> I swear. Don't be that guy. Okay. Uh, don't be a Duralex-Sedlex type. I mean, I do get it that if you are going against jury nullification, you are, to an extent, upholding the principle of Duralex and Lex, but it shouldn't end there, right? You should analyze why is it important that we apply the law as it is. So you don't simply state, well, the law says he's guilty, therefore he should be guilty. No, that, I mean, you should be able to argue the principle behind the concept of Duralex and Lex. So don't end the analysis only there that, well, it's the law, it's harsh. Well, I'm sorry, we have to follow it, right? But you need to explain the reason why, even if it's harsh, we need to follow it. Like, what's the principle behind uh, this concept? So, yeah. I remember th there was a debate in, in high school. I was against uh, a law person, a law student. And then he started speaking Latin to me like, Oh, no. Not just Duralex said Lex, but like, Nositor Asochis or something like that. And I was like, um, Alohomora, Expelliarmus. <laughs> Um, so, so yeah, so don't be a duralex sedlex type of person. Yeah, so um, I guy. guess that's it for the three motions. Um, thank you so much again for um, agreeing to be a motion contributor. Um, it's a great help not only to us um, as you know podcast so po mm -hmm. podcast hosts, but also I think it's a great help to um, novice debaters and the debate community in general. Mm. Um, I guess the last question that we can ask here is what advice would you give novice debaters who are just starting out their debate journeys um, and might be 
intimidated by social legal as a theme because at least in my experience sometimes i give motions about law or legal concepts social legal motions to um some of the kids and they were like ah i don't know anything about the law well social legal motions actually it's a misnomer social legal because legal motions are about society it's it's a social motion right because again the law is merely a codification of what we think is right and is wrong so for newbie debaters don't be intimidated when you face social legal motions because you don't need to know the law in order for you to debate it well what you should be doing here is you must be structured like you must be clear also you must be able to tell the judge from which set of values are we coming from like how do we assess whether something is right or something is wrong and these are things which you do in your daily life right like in your ordinary life when when whenever you're faced with a certain situation like you you found out your best friend is cheating on his or her a partner and you're close to his or her partner so you're faced with a moral dilemma do i tell that person that your best friend is cheating etc so in that moral situation you already have like a set of values in your head to decide on what is the right thing to do so basically you're just doing that in a, in a social legal motion like you are faced with a situation and yet you need to come up with a set of values in order for you to judge whether this course of action is right or wrong so those are social legal motions it's not about the law it's about us defending something is right or is it wrong and you do that in your daily lives like every day so there's nothing to be afraid of really thank you so much um i guess that perfectly wraps this episode up so once again thank you so much for listening um if you are a participant in debatable open i hope that the these breakdowns of the motions help thank you again to carlo antonio for taking the time out of your day to talk to us and to make these motions um i'm sure um a lot of people would be grateful for something like this so that's it. Um, we'll see you in the next episode. Bye. Bye-bye. Right, thank you, guys.